Well, good morning, church family. Good morning. Please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we look at David's response to the covenant that God has given to him here in 2 Samuel. And as I begin, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Everyone think with me for just a moment. In your life, what moves you? Like, What are the things in your life that move you? Where you become overwhelmed, where you have to stop and have a moment of what some people call like a moment of transcendence, like a, a moment where you encounter something that is completely other than you, and you become overwhelmed by it. For me, typically it has to do with being a dad. So I am, um, I, I, if I watch a movie with a scene of a dad loving his kids, I will lose it. Okay, I will, I will absolutely lose it. Or if one of those country songs comes on about kids growing up and time flying by, if you see me driving my truck and I'm doing all this right here, it's because I'm weeping. I'm weeping as I think about that, okay? So um, I know all of you see me as a tough and macho guy, <laughs> but I'm really, really sentimental at heart, all right? So that stuff gets me. And for my wife, Kelly, it's those rom-com shows on the Hallmark Channel. I think she watches those thinking that it'll rub off on me. I, so she would say I might be sentimental, but I'm not very romantic. Now, let me just say that my wife, um, I would never say she's wrong about that because she's never wrong. But she can be mistaken. Um... It may be something different that moves you, right? It might be watching UT beat Duke um, on television yesterday. But that's it for me. Now, there are certain things. Everybody's different, right? God made us all different. But there are certain things that should move you. There are certain things that should move you. If they don't, then the problem lies in us and not that thing. Like, for example... We should be moved by the grandeur of the world that God has created. Like sitting on the beach at sunset, where I would argue we should all be right now. Alright? Watching the sunset over the ocean, that should move you. Standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and realizing, first of all, how big that ditch is. And how small you are. Um, that should move you. Or watching the morning mist rise in the Smoky Mountains or standing in the middle of a mountain stream trout fishing. Those things should move you. Or gazing into the clear night sky with a billion stars glimmering like diamonds. Holding the hand of a newborn child. Watching the twinkling eyes of your grandmother as she smiles and tells you a story. Now, those things should move you. They should. God made us to be moved by glory and beauty and love. That's why we get overwhelmed by those things. God made us to be moved by those things. But He also made us to be moved by grace. He also made us to be moved by truth and to be moved by God's promises. And that is the essence of worship. To be moved by who God is what He has done, and what He's promised to do. Okay? And that is what we're going to see in our text this morning. In chapter 7 of, of 2 Samuel, David longs to build God a house for the ark. 
That's what he wants, but instead, God graciously initiates a covenant with David and promises to build him a house through which he will extend the promises of Abraham and bless the nations through David. And so now, at the end of chapter 7, we have David's response to all of those promises that God has made. So I want to read um, as we go through the text, and I want you to see three major movements of these verses in verses 18 through 29. Three movements, okay? And we're going to start with the first one. I want you to notice that when David goes in, the first thing he responds to is that God is sovereign in grace. Okay? So let's pick up there. I'm going to pick up there at the end. Um, I'm going to go back to verse 17 and read through verse 22. He says there, In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan is relaying the covenant that God has promised to David. Okay, David receives God's word through Nathan the prophet. And it says this is what happened. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise that according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. And there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. I want you to see here right now that David recounts God's sovereign grace to him. And he does it in at least three ways. Okay, three brief ways. Notice here that David begins with talking about God's past grace, right? We talked about this some last week. David knows that God is the one who has been sovereign over all of his life and who has graciously made him who he is. It is God who has brought him to this place. And that's why David asks, after looking at this, he goes in and sits before the Lord in the tent, and he says, who am I? Who am I, and what is my house that you have brought me to this place? David is having a moment of reflection. He knows that all of it is owed to grace. It was God who made him, who saved him from the lion and the bear, who saved him from the Philistines and from Goliath. It was God who anointed him to be king, though he was the youngest. It was God who preserved him from Saul and all his enemies. It was God who set him as shepherd over Israel. None of that was David's doing. That was David's past. But notice that also God, David responds to God's future grace. Also in the future, David knows that this grace will continue. He says in verse 19, This was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. That David knows that this promise goes not only for the past and the present, but into the future. And David is blown away that what God has done in his past, and now he's overwhelmed of what God has promised to do as he cares for David's future descendants. That's amazing. And by the way, we live, we live by faith in future grace as well. We know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's the future. That God's promises, time in the future, are, God's promises are unshakable by whatever is in our future, which is why Paul says, neither height nor depth, 
I'm, he's convinced that nothing in all of creation, height nor depth, things present, things to come, nothing in all of creation can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's future grace that is going to come to us for eternity. But then David says there's a third way this grace has come to him, and it is instructing grace. It's instructing at grace. Look at the end of verse 19. David talks about God's past and future grace, and then he says this. This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. This is instruction. The Hebrew is wezo torat adam. There you go. I quoted Hebrew for you. It literally reads, this is the Torah of man. This is the law of man, the instruction to mankind. Some translators say this is the charter for humanity. Now, there's two basic truths here that are instructing for us. Okay, the first is that God is sovereign, not only over David and over Israel, but over all of humanity. This is instruction for humanity that God intends to keep his promise to Abraham, to bless the nations through his descendants in David's line, and that the whole world is involved in this blessing through David. And all of this culminates in the in uh, a, all of God's plan culminates in Christ Jesus coming. So what's instructing grace is that God is sovereign over all of humanity, not just David, not just Israel, but over all of the world. And the second great the second truth here that's instructing is that only God is great. Only God is great. David says in verse twenty two, therefore. Because you've instructed me and instructed us, therefore you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, and there's no God beside you according to all we have heard with our ears. So David has been instructed by this gracious and glorious God that there's no one like him. Now that is a pillar of Old Testament theology that is repeated over and over again. Moses says in Exodus 15, listen to this. Moses says in Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord God, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And what's the answer? No one. Not the gods of Egypt, not the gods of Assyria, not the gods of Phoenicia, not the gods of Babylon. There is no God like our God. And then in Deuteronomy, Moses says, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and such mighty acts? Solomon is going to repeat this claim when he dedicates the temple to God. He says, the house that I am to build will be great. For our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him except a place to make offerings? Or Psalm 86 that says, There is none like you among the gods, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord God, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. That is instructing grace as God reveals himself to us so that we don't settle for less. So that we don't settle for lesser 
gods or lesser idols. Listen to this story. In 1715, King Louis IX of France died after a reign of 72 years. He had called himself King Louis the Great. And he was the monarch who made the famous statement, I am the state. His court was the most magnificent in Europe and his funeral was equally spectacular. As his body lay in state in a golden coffin for his extended funeral, orders were given that the cathedral should be very dimly lit with only one special candle set above his coffin to dramatize his greatness. Imagine yourself there. Dimly lit cathedral, one candle over a golden coffin where Louis the Great, who reigned for 72 years, who claimed to be the state of France, has now died. At the memorial, thousands waited in hushed silence. Then Bishop Massillon, who was told to give the who was told to conduct the funeral, began to speak. He walked to the front, slowly reached down snuffed out the candle and simply said, only God is great. That is instruction for all of us. David is not great, though he is king. David's house is not great. Israel is not great. God alone is great. David is merely the recipient of God's grace. And this grace instructs us. Now hear me. David is blown away by the sovereign grace of God. So much so that he has to leave his magnificent palace of cedar to sit before the Lord in a tent that he just thought was inadequate. He just thought the tent was inadequate. And now it's not the tent that matters. For David, it is the presence of God and the grace of God that matters. And this is what brought David to the ground in humility. This is what caused him to think about who he was in light of God's grace and glory. Listen, don't you remember in the last story? As the ark comes into Israel, into Jerusalem, what is David doing? He's dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and that is worship. And now he's sitting before the Lord in humility, and that is also worship. Sitting or dancing, he sits reveling in the grace of God. So hear me, receiving God's grace, seeing and recognizing God's grace, experiencing God's grace, what that leads to is humility and worship to be moved rightly before God. It is so for David and it should be for us as well. Sovereign in grace, that's why he praises God. Second. Notice that God is also sovereign in redemption. Look at verses 23 and 24 as David turns his attention to God's people. He says in verse 23, he says, And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out from before your people um, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and it's God. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. 
And you, O Lord, became their God. You see here that David now turns to recount God's sovereign grace in redeeming Israel. There are three simple but profound truths here that you need to take home. Notice first, this is all about God's sovereign purposes in redeeming Israel by His grace. Notice first that David says that God chose Israel for Himself. God chose Israel for Himself. David says that Israel is unique. They are the one nation that God chose for Himself. Now, if David was the only one to say that, you might say David is, um, David is making this up. But this is exactly what Moses had told Israel in Deuteronomy 7. Listen to that. This is what Moses says. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Now listen to this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest among all the peoples. That's grace. I didn't choose you because you were good or because you were big. I chose you because I simply chose you. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God chose Israel by His grace. Second truth. God went and redeemed Israel from Egypt for Himself. Notice that David says here that God goes to Egypt to redeem Israel from slavery, to make God's name and glory known. God did it to, to display Himself as great and above all gods. So over and over again, God looks at Israel and says, I didn't save you because you were great. I didn't redeem you because you were great. I didn't redeem you because you deserved it. I did it because I am great and I am glorious and you don't deserve this. Again, Moses says the same thing in Deuteronomy 4. He says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever you call upon Him? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for Himself from the midst of another nation by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? So God does this for Israel. He goes and redeems them from Egypt for himself. And third, David says that God established Israel as a people for himself. You established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people. So this is the story, by the way, of God's people. God chooses them, hear me, for himself. God redeems them for himself. God establishes them. Why? For himself. God does this for the sake of his own name and glory. Not for the sake of David and not for the sake of Israel, but for God's own glory because he chose them and rescued them and established them. Now here's what this means. Hear me. This is redemption. This is God is sovereign in redemption. And redemption in the scriptures has two great pillars that cannot be separated. Two great pillars. And those two pillars are, number one, liberation or freedom. 
God liberates, when he redeems his people, he liberates them and frees them. And the second pillar is that God possesses them and owns them. Okay, are you tracking? Liberation and freedom, possession and ownership. So hear me, this is what this means. Israel is freed and liberated from slavery in Egypt, right? And at the same time, they are bought and redeemed so that they belong to someone else. They are God's own possession. So this is what this means. You got to get this. Americans need to hear this. Israel is given freedom. They are not given independence. There's a difference. They're given freedom. You're no longer a slave. But you're not given independence. You belong to me. Does that make sense? We're freedom-loving people. Jesus gives us freedom. He does not give us independence. Those are different concepts. Israel's freed from being a slave in Egypt for the purpose of belonging to God alone. And the same is, uh, same is true for us in Christ. We are freed from sin so that we can belong to a new master, Jesus our Lord. We are liberated and possessed. We are freed and we are bought and owned. We are redeemed to serve another. Listen to what the New Testament says. Do you not know that your body is the, is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or 1 Peter, know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. You were ransomed, redeemed, bought, and paid for because God is sovereign over our redemption. Sovereign. Sovereign. And the third truth, notice that David ends after discussing God's grace to him and God's redemption over Israel by God's responding to God's sovereignty in prayer. That God is sovereign in prayer. Look at, look at how this ends in verses 25 through 29. This is so interesting. This is what it says. David says, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken and your name will be magnified forever. This is all about God's name and God's glory. Saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless this house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O oh Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Now, this is how David prays based on what Nathan has revealed to him. So how does David, if you were to ask, how does David approach God when he goes into the tent before the Lord? How does he approach God? 
He approaches God based on God's own word. He approaches God and basically asks God to do what he's promised. That's what David does. He goes before the Lord and says, you said so. You said so. Now look at this. You see this in at least four things right here. Look at verse 25. In verse 25, David says, do as you have spoken. God, will you do as you have spoken? Will you keep your word? Now, verse 27, he says, do what you have revealed. He says, God, you've made this revelation. I didn't ask for it. I didn't come begging for it. I never asked you for a house or a dynasty. And, God, and David says, do what you've revealed. It's your prerogative to reveal. It's your prerogative to hide. It's your prerogative to keep whatever you want to be secret to be secret. You do what you've revealed. Third, verse 28, do what you've promised. You made this promise, God, not me. You promised to, to keep my descendants before you. You promised to build a house. You do as you've promised. Verse 29. You bless your word and keep your word. God, you bless your word and you keep your word. Now listen. This kind of faith, faith in God's word and promises, this kind of faith is what leads to boldness in prayer. This is what leads to boldness in prayer. This is what does it. Look at the end of verse 27. Do you see boldness? What, is, what does the end of verse 27 say? Therefore your servant has found courage. It takes courage to go sit before the presence of God, which strikes down Uzzah, and which will kill anyone, whomsoever God desires, and for him to go in and sit before the Lord and say, the reason I have courage is because you were the one who made this promise. And I trust you at your word. I take you at your word. Listen, here's what this means for you every day when you get up and you go in before the Lord. Listen, God's promises are what sustain and strengthen our praying. If God doesn't keep his promises, why would you pray? Why? He doesn't keep his promises. Right? Why would you, why would you go pray? Listen, there is a difference in my child asking me for something, think about this, which I may or may not do, right? And my child, on the other hand, reminding me to do something I've promised. There's a difference, right? Think about this. Dad, can we go get ice cream after practice? That's a question, right? I get asked that all the time. All the time. Dad, can we go get ice cream after practice? Maybe, maybe not, right? It's my prerogative. Maybe, maybe not, right? There's a difference between me just asking, my kids asking for ice cream after a practice and this. Listen to this scenario. What if I say this, son, I promise to take you to get ice cream after practice today. And then the question comes later on. And it says, Dad, can we go get ice cream after practice today like you promised? Hmm. Yes, son. I will keep my promise. Right? There's a difference. There is a difference. Listen, I do my best to keep my word, but I'm not perfect. I sometimes fail. The difference is God doesn't fail. 
He has never broken a promise. He only and always does what He says He will do. It is the very promises of God that must fuel our prayers. And so if you don't know the promises of God, how then can you pray boldly? You can't. How can you know that God hears or that He will act? You must know the promises of God. And David does. And that's why his prayer is dripping with God's word. Now look back at our text as I conclude. All across this text, do you not see how David is moved by God's grace? He is moved with humility and worship. He is moved with praise of God and prayer. And David's worship and praise is based on God's grace and God's promises to him and God's people. And that's our story. David's story is not always our story. But in this case, it is our story. Our redemption as God's people is based on God's grace and promises to us in Christ. And just like David, our prayers are sustained and strengthened based on God's grace and promises to us in Jesus God's grace and promises are meant to move us. Move us. And if we're not moved, then the problem is with us and not with the glory and beauty of God's grace. Especially when we know that all of those promises that God made to David are now ours in Jesus. Listen, let me close this way. God here promised David a dynasty, a house. And can I just remind you that the final king of David's dynasty has come? The final king that God promised has come? This final king has brought with him grace upon grace. He has redeemed us as his people. He has chosen us by grace. He has purchased us with his blood. He has conquered our enemies of sin and death. And He will bring us everlasting peace and joy. He has brought with Him God's kingdom. And one day He will return and He will sit on David's throne in a new Jerusalem. Listen, those truths should move us. Go sit before the Lord this afternoon and revel in those covenant promises Go and worship before Him. Bask in your position as a son and daughter who has access by faith into the very presence of our Father. As Hebrews says, you know, go before the throne of grace with boldness to obtain the grace that you need. And by the way, and when you go, pray. And you need to have the courage to pray the prayers that Jesus instructed us to pray. When you go before Him, you can say, Father... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because you said so. Because you said so. Meet every need I have in the riches of Christ Jesus because you said so. Father, do not leave me nor forsake me in my sin because you have said so. That is the promise we have as God's people. And it should fuel our worship and our prayers. Would you pray with me? Father... Father, we come before you today in the name of your son, Jesus. You told us to come before you in his name and to pray anything according to your will. And, we, and you have promised to hear us. And Father, we know that your word is your will. 
And so, Father, we pray that today you would move over us and conform us to the image of Jesus. That today you would strengthen and sustain our faith. That you would awaken faith in unbelievers and you would work in us repentance. Father, that you would fill us by your Spirit, that we might not walk in ways that are contrary to your Word, but Father, we may walk in ways that please you in every respect. And Father, that you would give us courage and boldness to do your will. And Father, though none go with us, that we would follow Christ. So Father, today, if there's any here who do not know Jesus as Lord, our great and gracious King, that today they would recognize their sin and they would hear your voice calling them to repentance. And Father, you've said that your sheep hear your voice and you call to them and they answer. So Father, would you bring about grace today, sovereign grace? Would you bring about redemption? And Father, would we recognize that you are sovereign over all things, even our prayers? So, Father, move and act according to your purposes today. We pray this in Jesus' name.